This is the Swampscott Library's Librarians by the Sea podcast, where we share our love of a good book with you. I'm your host, Julie Travers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Librarians by the Sea podcast. I'm your host, Julie Travers, and today we have Library Director Alice DeVoe on the podcast to discuss and recommend the story, The Bookwoman of Troublesome Creek by Kim Michelle Richardson. This book tells the fictional story of Cussie Carter, who was the last in the line of Kentucky's blue-skinned people. She became one of the Pack Horse Librarians, delivering books and materials throughout rural Kentucky during the 1930s. In our discussion, Alice and I talk about the importance of access to information and the parallels that can be drawn from the Pack Course Librarian Program to the way libraries have had to adapt digitally in our daily life in the current pandemic. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm here today with Alice, who's the director of the library, um, to talk about another book recommendation that we have for you. It's the Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. Um, what she's read. So I've got some questions, some general questions for her about it, and then we'll get into um, some other sort of questions that parallel the time that we are in right now. Um, so if you don't mind, would you just mind telling me a little bit about the book and uh, why it appealed to you? Hi, Julie. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I guess, well, the title kind of caught my attention first, Book Woman, but uh, being a book woman, and um, I started looking into it, and it just seemed like a really interesting topic. And in a time I didn't know really anything about, it was during the Depression, and I just found it kind of an interesting thing to look into. The story of, um, they were a group of people called, it was a library project that was started during the Depression, the Pack Horse Library Project. And they had these people going through um, the mountains. This was in Appalachia, Kentucky bringing books to the people in the mountains of Appalachia uh, because they weren't being schooled and they couldn't get anything to read. So um, there were workers, they were paid workers who would uh, go from place to place in Appalachia dropping off books. Mm. How did, do you know how the um, mobile book delivery system started? Well, um, I know the, the character, um, the main character of the book, her name is Cussie Mary Carter. Uh, she was really determined that people should get information. She was really interested in getting it out to people. And so they had like a, uh, almost like a drop-off center where they would drop off materials. And then the people who were working on this pack horse project would go to the center and load up their uh, horses or pack mules or whatever they had to take them around to the people. And they each had routes, almost like a mailman going to the post office to pick up the mail and they would pick up uh, materials, not necessarily always books. Sometimes they were magazines, old newspapers, flyers, pamphlets. People were just so desperate for something to read that she would bring whatever she could along with her to uh, drop off to these people. Wow. And were you aware of this, um, this system before reading this book? I read a couple of reviews that said that people were just so shocked that this was even real never heard of it ever in my life. I, I mean, I just, I mean, growing up here in the Northeast, we've always had books. We've always had libraries. I mean, it's always just been part of our life. Right. And I couldn't even believe that these people were unable to get any kind of reading material. And it was such a 
poor, um, absolutely abject poverty where they were living in Appalachia. Mm. And um, they, you know, it's totally not the lifestyle that we had here. So it, I had no idea it ever existed. Mm. Just doing a little bit of research, it seems like the main character had a sort of a unique perspective in yeah. that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about her as a character? She was a unique character. Yeah. yeah. She was. She was just 19 years old, a little slip of a kid. She was just a young girl, um, very young. And her, her father, it was just her father and she living uh, together. Her mother had passed. And when her mother passed, her father told her he, she, he promised the mother that he would find her a husband. That was his main goal, finding Cassia a husband because he didn't want her to be alone because she was the last of her generation, if you would. Um, and um, what made her really different as the last of the generation was she had a nickname and she was called Bluette because she was blue. Her skin color was blue. It was um, some type of a genetic disorder and um, the family all had blue nails, blue skin. If she got upset, nervous, stressed out, her, she would, instead of blushing like normal people, she would blush blue. Mm. And um, I found that really interesting as I was reading the book. Um, and then I, I was doing research on it and found that this is not, this is true. I, I kind of thought, wow, what a strange thing for this author to make up. Not. Um, there were a family called the Kugits, and they moved to the Kentucky area. And um, they were all living together. And they were blue. And um, further researching it, these there were still people in the 1960s living in Kentucky that still had the same, uh, you know, DNA problem. Um, turning wow. well, it was really it was really kind of an interesting twist in the book kind of interesting in her project of getting the books out but then the fact that she was blue made it even a little bit more interesting right and so how was she uh regarding in, in her community was she uh, she was very discriminated against mm. um it was really funny because it just seemed like such an odd thing but she would try to cover it up they all did they they did everything they could not to have that blue appear but it did. I mean, they couldn't control it. And um, she, there was a lot of prejudice against her. And on a kind of a rank, they were felt that they were beneath blacks in the community. And at this point, blacks were not even almost an accepted part of the community. So the, blue, the, the, the blues were even regarded as lower in mm. rank than the blacks at the time. Um, there was a doctor who tried to help her, and he found giving her some type of poison, I forget what it was, that for a while staved off the blue. So she didn't turn blue. And uh, she, her father didn't want her to try it, but she kept thinking that it would be great for her and for them if they could, you know, figure out some way of, of ending this uh, DNA problem they had. But it was poison. And because she took it, she got violently ill. So it was going to kill her. <laughs> so she guess she had a decision to make of whether she wanted to be blue for the rest of her life or take this medicine to stay white for a while. And even when she turned white, people didn't accept her because they knew she was a blue. Mm. So it she faced a lot of discrimination and prejudice. In the mm. book. Yeah. So it sounds like she had a lot to overcome. Um, did you identify with any other characters in the book? Um, 
Yeah, but, uh, well, you know, identified with a lot of the people that she went to visit. Mm. It was it was really heart rendering. Um, she she went to this one woman who um, had an, a family. She was desperate for reading material, and she would bring her reading material. The woman was very pregnant, and she wanted to help her. And they were so poor that doctors wouldn't come to visit them. Um, and so she tried to help the woman. And, um, the, and, and it, as it turned out, the woman lost the baby and lost her life. So it was just like, oh, my God, these people were so poor that, you know, you just wanted to do something to help them. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a really interesting story. Do you think, what do you think happens after the story ends to these characters? Um, well, I know how the book ends, so I don't want to tell people how the book right. ends and what happens. But, but um, life will get a little better for Cussie Mary after the book is over. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's kind of a depressing book. I, I suppose in one sense it's really a bad book to be reading at this point because it is a little depressing as you're reading it, all the poverty and all. But the end is hopeful. There mm-hmm. is hope. And you know that Cussie Mary's life is going to be better when they finish the when when the as the story goes on from that point that's good and the, and the blues life did get better they because they realized it was the real people the real blue people who this because they realized it was a genetic disorder uh, and people started to investigate those people were not as discriminated against later on in life so mm. things got better that's good is this uh generally a book that you would pick up yourself to read for pleasure or I really enjoyed it, and I really wish other people would read it. In fact, I'm going to have my book group plan, and if we ever get back to the library, mm-hmm. read it, because there's a lot to discuss in the book, and it really is an enjoyable book. Um, I, I read mostly fiction, so I probably would have picked it up, especially with the title that was kind of alluring to me, the book, mm-hmm. Troublesome Creek. Mm-hmm. Well, I really thought it was going to turn out to be a mystery when I first picked, saw the title come up when I was reading reviews. I don't know why. I just had a... Troublesome Creek led me to think it was going to be a mystery. Uh, I know you, t- you talked a little bit about using it as a recommendation to our patrons, but what what specifically about it do you think um, people could identify with right now? Oh, well, people can't get materials, <laughs> just like the people now are uh, at their homes and they, they can't get their books and they can't get magazines and um, everybody's housebound. These people were housebound, but in a different way. They were housebound by their poverty in the area where they lived. We're all housebound because of COVID-19. So right. I, it really does relate a lot to life now because even as all of us that are working at the library, all the librarians are trying to get material out to people in our area, just like Cussie Mary did in her area. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's really a very relative book at this point in time. Right, yeah, and just when I was doing research, not knowing much about the book itself, I could really draw a parallel to what, um, you know, the anxiety that I felt, even just as a, a, a lover of a book, um, just leaving the library on the last day and not knowing when we could get an opportunity to go find books themselves, you know, just to visit the library and pick up books. It's such a luxury that you don't realize. Um, and I feel bad that our patrons did they weren't able to foresee this happening, or I don't think anybody could foresee this happening. So um, in that way, I think it's it's a good parallel. It oh. is. I have a, a, a nightstand in my bedroom, and I have one of my emergency reading books. <laughs> those are books that I never read. I just leave them there. Right. Just in 
in case there ever was a time when I couldn't get books. Mm-hmm. I almost never thought that I would ever be reading those books. Mm-hmm. But now I am. Yeah. I feel it. I do feel bad for all the people in our community that are home and in desperate need of reading material, especially those people who came to the library all the time mm-hmm. to get books and our book lovers. Right. Just like people in Kentucky, they were book they were they were thirsting for something to read and mm-hmm. helped by bringing it to them. Um, did this book make you think about the importance of our profession um, and of just in general access to information? It really did. I mean, because we're all librarians and we all love books and we see the importance of it, sometimes I wonder if anyone else sees that much importance to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, like, being in the library and having all the people come and having people even email me now that can't come to the library saying, oh, I miss it so much, or FaceTime. Mm-hmm. they can't come in it did make me feel better about what we do and, and realize that what we do is important it's certainly not life-saving um i we used to have a librarian that worked at less and said it's not brain surgery mm-hmm. and that was true it isn't but it is important and it's we feel a need i think that a lot of people have and it, it made me almost feel good about the fact that this is what i decided to do with my life right yeah so what inspired you to become a librarian i um in high school, I worked as a library page. Just mm. was, I got a job working. I did always love books. I always was a reader from the time I was little. I went from the Nancy Drews to everything. You know, I, I was always a reader. But when I got a page position working in the library, I really fell in love with being around books. I think I love books. I think that's what it is. And working in the library, I mean, a day off, I meet my daughter and walk around Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. because I like books, I like, right. um, but um, yeah, I just, that's, I started when I was 14, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I've had a, a love of books for a long time. Right. Um, how do you think that the the field of librarianship has changed, like, you know, maybe over time, but also just in the time, in this pandemic that we're in right now, what do you think, how do you think libraries are stepping up to uh, meet the demands of of patrons? I am really, as the library director, I am really so proud of everybody that works at the library and how much work you've all done. I'm amazed. I, I, I keep telling everyone I'm a Neanderthal because all of you are such much more technologically astute than I am. All of the things that you have managed to get out to the public. And I think that's, it's, I think in a sense, this is going to change the face of the library as well. I don't think it's ever going to go back to the way it was. I think we'll be adding this as another positive offering of the library. Mm-hmm. Probably will continue podcasts and will continue a lot more outreach via social media. Mm-hmm. But we did do a lot. This is, I mean, this has been our only method of being able to uh, communicate with our patrons now. So I think the face of the library will change a lot. It's the face of libraries changed a lot since I've become a librarian right? from all the technology that's been added to it. But I think the pandemic has, will change it forever. I really do. I see the whole face of, well, the face of the world is going to change forever as far as I can see. I don't think we'll ever go back to what we would have considered normal from this point on. And I think that will be true of the library world as well. Right. Um, I remember I ran a race last summer, um, and it benefited the Magnolia, the Magnolia Library in Gloucester. Um, and 
the, at the start of the race, the race director said, oh, what's next? We'll be uh, raising money for a phone booth. And it was meant as a joke. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just looked around and I was like, come on. Yeah. There's so much more to libraries than I think people recognize. Um, yeah. And I think that how fast we've been able to um, adapt to work, doing all of our work digitally is, is pretty impressive. Right. Yeah. Um, um, I, think, I do think a lot of people didn't realize how much libraries did, or how, how much libraries had to offer. But now that they're home and we're one of their means of getting some information, some things, I think they'll realize that we do have a service that's really important. Right. Um, have you noticed other libraries in the area or, you know, in the country doing anything sort of outstanding? I know you, you're sometimes clued into to what other libraries are doing. A lot of libraries are doing very similar projects that we are doing mm -hmm. in the podcast, the outreach. Um, some of the libraries are hiring performers who would have done the performance at both in the building or doing it online. We're going to be doing a few of those as well. Mm -hmm. Having people, um, you know, reach out to the community via the internet. I, my, my only worry, and, I, and it keeps bothering me all along, are, are those patrons that we have who aren't computer literate, who don't right. have the internet. And it's really hard to reach out to them. Mm -hmm. because they don't have that means. And but that's why they come to us. <laughs> that's why they come to us, exactly. Okay. We're, we're what they do face-to-face, -face, not on the internet. And that's a big worry I have, and I don't know. We've tried by calling people and just kind of touching base uh, with people that we can get in touch with, just because I think that's an important facet of our, our, our work at the library, too, is social interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I read an article in Library Journal um, about sort of the, all the gaps that libraries fill in our society as sort of, they're just sort of like the catch-all for a lot of different types of people. Um, and I think this pandemic sort of, and when the libraries have closed, this pandemic shows how many different kinds of things we do. I mean, there's just, just even the people that don't have access to the internet, but are able to come and, and have like a, a friendly conversation with other community members, I think is really important and is definitely a big part of our library. Oh, it really is, especially at Swampscott. I mean, mm -hmm. we have groups of people who come in every day, the same people come in every day, the same groups come in every day. We have our crossword group now and our knitters and our writing group and uh, the language group, the practically speaking English group, who come all the time and that's part of their interaction as um, members of the library. Mm -hmm. and, um, that's a big part of, that is a big part of what libraries offer. And even in the book, Cussie Mary was, she was a big part of the social interaction with the people in Kentucky because she went from people to people. She found out what they liked to read. She brought whatever she could to try to fill um, their needs, just like we do at the library. Right. Beyond just, you know, a recommendation. Beyond, right, exactly. Beyond just handing someone a book. We try to do other things, yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, is there anything else you want to mention about the book itself or uh, upcoming programs that the library is running online? Uh, the book is um, available through Overdrive. So if people don't have um, access to it, obviously no one can get it now through the library, but they can get it through Overdrive. 
they could read it online or listen to it um, as an audio book as well. So it is um, available that way. That's great. Yeah. Excellent. Um, well, thank you so much for your time and um, your discussion on, on this book. Um, are you reading anything else right now that's just for fun or just for pleasure? I am. I'm reading a Joseph Finder book right now. Oh, so, uh, yeah, which I'm trying to do a lot. I read another book called The River, which I'm going to discuss maybe later on by Peter Heller, which is a really good book as well. But, um, yeah, and we are, and people should check on the website because we do put a lot of um, hints and suggestions or reviews of what other librarians are reading that might people might find interesting as well. They look on our Swampscott Library website. Excellent. Um, okay, great. Thank you so much, um, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks, Julie. All right, bye. Thanks.